Hey everybody, welcome back to the Macro Compass. This is Alf speaking, and the title of today's article is A Chat with the Top Macro Hedge Funds. The idea is to peek over the shoulders of the best in class together. This week felt like good old days to me. I was in London for some conferences, for food. Well, kidding. I also met clients and friends who work for the top macro hedge funds in the world. These guys are amongst the most sophisticated macro investors out there, but they really excel and their best skill is that they're humble about markets. They're always wondering whether there is really a good risk reward in that trade and where their macro thesis could go wrong. And the macro compass has always been about sharing my never-ending macro learning journey with you guys. But today, I want to have a peek over the shoulders of the top macro hedge fund managers together. So in this article, we'll unpack the main thinking and the market musings of three influential macro hedge fund managers, and we will summarize the main implications for portfolio locations and tactical trade ideas. Now, the first hedge fund manager is the CIO, actually, of a macro rates and credits fund. He's a European gentleman with a long history in global fixed income strategy and fund manager. He, fund management, he now runs um, these rates and credits focused macro hedge fund. And as I enter into his office, his first question is, Alf, where is the trade? And I love this because you can chat macro narratives all you want, but where is that good risk reward trade that we all look for? Now, he starts from a background and a backdrop of a world healing from inflationary pressures. He argues that the global supply chain is easing, core goods inventories abound, while new orders remain weak, and a big deleveraging in China is likely to keep that demand engine at bay. Now, all is very disinflationary, he argues, but when I show him a chart that you can see in the article, I ask him, isn't that already priced in? The chart shows how markets expect a 5% drop in US CPI over the next few quarters already. To find a similar market implies CPI drop in a 12-month period, you have to go all the way back to 2008. Now, he argues that yes, indeed, that is his point, that investing isn't like painting on a white canvas. We must always compare our subjective assessment of scenarios against what markets are discounting. And right now, if your investment thesis solely relies on a sharp slowdown in inflation, yeah, well, that's kind of priced in. But where it disagrees with markets, where I think he has an upside, is that the labor market will take a big, bigger hit than priced in and earlier than expected. Now, he starts from the housing market, and I agree with him. The bull case for the housing market ahead is a total freeze. This is the bull case, huh? So new marginal buyers are priced out due to a combination of today's prices and mortgage rates. Basically, affordability is very low. And sellers will hold on for as long as they can to avoid hitting a lower bid on their planned sales. Now, this means plenty of pain for housing-related job creation. And this is important. The math is very simple. Given the labor force growth, the US needs to add roughly 90,000 jobs per month to keep unemployment rates stable. Now, housing is big. Housing-related activity, brokers, construction, furniture, shops, etc., they account for almost 20% of US GDP and over 12 million jobs. Now, if all other sectors just slow towards their trend job creation and only 10% of real estate-related jobs are lost, that means that US non-farm payrolls are likely to become negative next year. And indeed, the housing market is the business cycle. We agree there. And if you look at the chart I put in the article, 
uh, it seems like unemployment rate could be headed all the way towards 7% in 2023, which is not definitely market consensus yet. So I asked him, well, what's the trade? And he likes downside in home builders, real estate investment trusts, and any credit products linked to the real estate market. The second um, hedge fund portfolio manager is actually a lady, and she is a portfolio manager for a family office, a macro PM. That was a prominent uh, macro hedge fund and turned into a family office relatively recently. And all she wants to talk about right here is the US dollar and monetary plumbing. And the question she asked for me is, is it going to be a death by a thousand cuts or a sharp systemic risk event? Because that makes a difference for a macro view. She looks at the world through the lens of the euro dollar system, this dollar-centric credit and economic system that we have created. Despite the US and the US dollar accounting for only 10% of world trades and 20% of global GDP, the US dollar takes the lion's share of global trade invoicing, payments, and most importantly, credit creation, so loans and international debt issuance outside the US, denominated in US dollars. At the end of 2021, the BIS reports that outstanding amount at roughly $12 trillion. This is dollar-denominated credit sitting on the balance sheet of entities outside the US. Now, as long as dollars organically flow towards this dollar-leveraged foreign entities, it's all fine. But for the last six to nine months, that wasn't really the case as global trade growth slowed down and access to cheap dollar funding came to a halt. Now, interestingly, she also thinks that the US economy is in a much better shape, much better than many people believe, and that for several reasons, consumers will be able to withstand much higher rates for much longer. These, in turn, will force the Fed to keep pushing. That's what we're seeing um, so far in 2022. And in such a dollar-centering system, that means that something will probably break. Now, where and what breaks? That matters a lot for a macro thesis. She argues that there are two scenarios, death by a thousand cut and a sharp systemic event. And right now we are witnessing the death by a thousand cut. We are seeing idiosyncratic events happening at the fringes first, Turkey, for instance, and slowly moving towards the um, core of the, of the problem. And in that case, for instance, that would be the UK pension fund story. Now, that's definitely not enough for the Fed to pivot with core inflation north of 6%. What would be, what would warrant a Fed pivot or a turnaround would be a breakdown of the REIT or the Treasury market. But she argues, and I agree with her, that at the moment, nothing is really broken in the Treasury market. Yes, we have wider bid-ask spreads, but those are merely a function of much higher volatility, which forces market makers to quote investors wider to be more conservative when onboarding risks. And if you look at the repo market on the other end, it's still functioning pretty much, much okay. So if you're assuming that for now, we're looking at a death by a thousand cut scenario, where is the next cut? That's really the question. And she thinks that China will be forced to aggressively devalue. That's incredibly important for global macro. We have seen such an event or a similar one in 2016, and this could be really, really interesting. Now the last macro hedge fund portfolio manager I met as a friend and one of the smartest macro investors I know is always thinking in probability terms. He's very macro fluent, as I say, in all major, uh, major asset classes. And he's a portfolio manager for a very large, well-known cross-asset global macro hedge fund. And he says that everybody is still using the last 10-year framework and they are wrong. Now, this is quite the opening line. What he means is that many investors are underestimating, especially the power of fixed income volatility and also mispricing some tails. Now, 
bond volatility, fixed income market volatility, is very important for market makers and asset allocators. Now, imagine if the deepest, most liquid market in the world is moving by 10 basis points a day. It's going to be very hard to convincingly allocate into risk assets when the very base layer of the pyramid of all asset classes is being so unstable. Now, what happens is his question if none of the tails realize, if this volatility we see stays with us, but we stabilize roughly around 4.5% Fed funds for several quarters in a row at the end. Now, what happens is that realized bond volatility comes down as we stabilize around that level and implied volatility would come down too. And what it does to risk asset valuations is that that supports them. So that will be bullish on the margin. You can see a chart that I put in the, in the article if you want to have a look at that relationship. But now, if that could be bullish, he has a question about the tails. Now he asks me, what's your subjective probability that the Fed will be at two and a half or at six and a half by December next year? So assuming we'll be at four and a half by the end of this year, that basically means a 200 basis point cutting or hiking cycle in 2023. Now the market assigns exactly the same probability to both tails. So the same fatness to both tails, 11% chance. Now, he believes that in a world where we are reasonably much tighter than neutral already, and by then, for a long period of time, by December 2023, the left tail, so Fed funds at 2.5% or below, should actually command a higher premium than, than the right tail, because when we are much tighter than neutral for such a long period of time, the chance that something goes wrong, so that premium, that convexity, should actually be priced with a higher premium, which isn't right now. And he says that sort of linear thinking about bond market volatility, about tails by investors that are applying the last decade framework might present some chances in this highly volatile and convex macro environment. So where is the trade at the end of the day? Now, the conclusion of this article is that so far, being short everything and long dollar cash was a great risk reward trade, given the set of macro, macro circumstances and market pricing at the beginning of the year. And I'm pretty happy that the macro compass framework pointed in the right direction back then and so far. Now, today, the story is a bit different. I remain overall defensive, but I am aware that both the medium-term risk-reward has changed and the bear markets often come with big, vicious rallies. And the cyclical growth slowdown is underway, but is also well understood by market participants. And so is the very clear and globally concerted central bank tightening effort. On top of this, cross-asset valuations every price, implied volatility has gone up, et cetera, et cetera. So the set of circumstances is very different as a starting point than it was at the beginning of the year. One thing that I think is still very mispriced is risk premium. So in the chart you can see in the article, basically I, I looked at forward earnings yield as a valuation metric and a five-year, five-year forward interest rate against each other. And if you look at the difference actually so far, Equity markets have barely even uh, tried to follow real yields higher, which means that mechanically equity risk premium is actually pretty compressed in such a macro environment. Now, instead of betting on one or the other or, or on, on white or black, one of the most interesting trades here could be a relative value trade, a risk premium trade, long bonds, short equities. So it's the relative performance that matters. Now, you can implement that too, by the way, in, in an ETF format. We'll talk about that in a second. But how do you lose money on this? So you lose money if real yields stay here or keep moving up, but stocks don't care anymore. 
So growth and earnings must be accelerating in that environment because it means the world can withstand higher yields and nothing happens to risk assets, which means growth and earnings must be very good, which isn't really a very foreseeable scenario ahead, in my opinion. Alternatively, you can have real yields dropping and equities rally more than proportionally so, which would basically mean that central banks have thrown the towel and Goldilocks is back. Also, not exactly my base case. My base case instead, and how you'll make money on this trade, if those base cases realize, is if real yields keep rising and soon these idiosyncratic risks popping up everywhere turn into a systemic risk, this will require higher risk premium. Alternatively, if nominal growth slowdown is bad enough to crack the labor market too, this will force the Fed to soften the stance, most likely at some point. That means lower real yields, but it won't allow equities to rally accordingly. That's a 2001 environment where there is nothing bullish about an earnings recession. Now, to implement it as a long-term asset allocator, one could choose to overweight bond exposure relative to their equity exposure and just try to, to basically either save some money or make some money in the relative overweight and underweight. If you're thinking about setting up a total return trade, you can also do that via ETF. For instance, long IEF, uh, which is a 7 to 10-year treasury ETF, and short SPY or long SH, which is the inverse of SPI. For non-US investors, you can also look at the ticker, the ETF tickers I mentioned in the articles. There is also a chance to do that as a non-US investor. You can also go long five or 10-year bond future against short S&P futures. Watch out, the trade should be beta weighted because there are different levels of volatility between the two asset classes. My preliminary rough calculations point to, to around three units of IEF against one unit of SPY. Now, guys, it's very hard out there. The macro compass is here to help all of us navigate through these very complex markets and this never-ending macro learning journey. This was all for today. Thanks for listening all the way through here. I hope you enjoyed this virtual tour with the top macro hedge funds out there. You picked over their shoulders together with me, and I hope you enjoyed it. If I can ask for one kind favor, it would just be to click on the like button in the article and try to share it to um, as many people as you know within the industry, within your social uh, network and your network in general, so that we can spread the word a bit further about the Macro Compass because it will really make my day. Thank you guys again, and we will talk next week.